0: Today on Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution, author, theologian, and researcher James Douglas suggests that President John F. Kennedy died for his pronounced turn towards peace during his short presidency.
1: John F. Kennedy says in his American University address he does not want a Pax Americana enforced on the world by American weapons of war, where he takes a stand against the entire military industrial complex. Which uh, is committed to a Pax Americana enforced on the world by American weapons of war.
0: We'll talk with author James Douglas as well as hear much of JFK's landmark speech on peace from June of 1963, less than six months before he was assassinated in Dallas.
2: I am talking about genuine peace, not merely peace in our time, but peace in all time.
0: Stay tuned for JFK's Turn Towards Peace today on Peace Talks Radio. This is Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. On our program, we spotlight the art and science of peacemaking throughout history and in our lives today. Whether it's the search for personal peace or learning how to reduce conflict nonviolently with others in our homes, workplaces, communities, or between nations, we consider it here on Peace Talks Radio. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls. Was John Fitzgerald Kennedy, the 35th President of the United States, murdered in November of 1963 because he was tilting his country's policies toward peace? Some historians and assassination conspiracy theorists think so. And one, author James Douglas, has dug deep into the historical record to make his case in his detailed 2008 book called JFK and the Unspeakable, Why He Died, Why It Matters, from Orbis Books. Mr. Douglas joins us from radio station WBHM in Birmingham, Alabama, which is near his home. Jim, welcome.
1: Thanks very much, Paul. I'm glad to be here.
0: Your book is nearly 500 pages of narrative and footnotes on the Kennedy presidency and the JFK assassination. But I want to start by asking you to deconstruct your title for us in brief, and then we'll obviously go into more detail. And let me start with the why he died part of your title.
1: He was willing to die. That's the bottom line. He had been close to death for a long time from his earliest days through his childhood, through especially the Second World War. And he, in his presidency, was in deep conflict with his national security state, which led him into deeper and deeper waters that threatened his life. And he was willing to die in order to turn toward peace, which I found to be a remarkable kind of change in the man during his time in the Oval Office. So he died because he was willing to die for the vision of a new world, which he articulated in a great speech that he made.
0: Which we're going to let our listeners hear a little bit later, and we'll also be going into more detail about this uh, evolution that you track. But let me ask you to say more about the unspeakable in your title. One would guess that it simply relates to the suggestion that Kennedy was killed by forces within his own government, which you lay out the possibility of. But you you take the term from the Trappist monk and spiritual writer Thomas Merton. The unspeakable has more to do with us in a way. Tell me a little bit more about that.
1: The unspeakable was a term that Thomas Merton coined in the midst of the 60s to describe a kind of evil whose depth and deceit in ourselves goes beyond the power of words to describe. And he meant something that is so deeply threatening to us and so deeply threatening to the government also and to systemic forces within our society, that is, going from systemic evil into our own psychic and personal spirituality, that we don't want to go there. Um, he was referring to forces that created the Vietnam War, the nuclear arms race, the assassinations of the 60s. But he was referring to something within us that doesn't want to go into those questions just as much as that kind of systemic evil doesn't want us to go there.
0: So in your view, the fear of confronting the unspeakable directly relates to the public's resistance to facing what you see as the facts of the Kennedy assassination and other covert government programs?
1: Yes, and it corresponds to what the national security state calls plausible Deniability. Just as the Central Intelligence Agency is authorized to conduct assassinations, to overthrow governments, so are we being pushed toward accepting that without going to the source of the problem, which is, on the one hand, a force within our government which has no accountability, on the other hand, It's a kind of attitude within us which doesn't want to accept responsibility.
0: Okay, then also in your title, Why It Matters, uh, you write that for 30 years you saw no connection between the assassination of JFK and the uh, theology of peace that you've been pursuing in your work. That's right. Why It Matters suggests that you see a clear connection now. So why does it matter that you call readers' attention to this now?
1: We are at the edge of possibilities that go right to the point of the Kennedy assassination. The Kennedy assassination was a duel between a president and his national security state over the direction of the United States of America. We are now in the midst of a struggle in the war on terror that corresponds to the Cold War, raises all the same evils, assassinations, overthrowing governments, torture, going to the point of all kinds of conflicts with our Constitution and with any kind of a real democracy. So if a president of the United States can be assassinated by his national security state because he, namely John Kennedy, tried to move in another direction— We face exactly the same prospect today if anyone tries to move, uh, and especially if we as a people try to move toward a different direction, which is profoundly necessary for our survival as a people.
0: Although you go into deep detail in your book on the evidence of the assassination, um, the history of the presumed assassin, Lee Harvey Oswald, all calling into question, as many other books have, the single gunman theory. Uh, For the purposes of Peace Talks Radio, I want to spend a little more time on what you develop in your book as this transformation of JFK from uh, a conventional cold warrior to someone determined to take concrete steps towards peace. Yes. And and someone who, in the months before his assassination, was trying to get Americans to embrace the concept of peace in a fundamental way, as we've referred to in June of 1963— He gives a speech on peace at American University that we'll be letting our listeners hear parts of later. But let me ask you to say a little bit about his steps toward that moment first as we track his history a bit. Where is John F. Kennedy on peacemaking as a congressman and senator before his election as president in 1960?
1: He has a checkered career. When he began running for Congress, he had a deep commitment to peacemaking in a sense that reflected his background in World War II, where he learned to hate war and where he experienced the death of many close friends and members of his own family. But during his years in Congress and as a senator, he became a Cold Warrior. And he had a kind of inner conflict going on during those years. On the one hand, he did retain his horror of war. On the other hand, he was pushing policies which contradicted that. He, uh, as a candidate for president, said that uh, the U.S. was behind the Soviet Union. It was exactly the reverse in terms of the development of missiles. And he probably didn't know that, but he found out very quickly once he became president And uh, he didn't reverse that quickly enough. He had a huge military buildup during the beginning of his presidency. The one thing that showed a different kind of Kennedy was that he supported um, Algerian independence. He supported Vietnamese independence. He supported uh, third world countries in ways that were fairly remarkable for a senator uh, during the time leading up to his presidency and i think that uh, uh alerted the cia to severe problems from their standpoint if he became president and that lay behind uh, i believe the assassination of lumumba just um, almost hours before he became president they didn't want kennedy to support a an independent african nationalist as one of his first steps as president
0: of course cuba becomes the main front Of Kennedy's interaction in the Cold War. And the first step is that he allows the Bay of Pigs invasion to proceed, attempting an overthrow of Castro there. But by not backing up the exiled forces with U.S. troops, it fails. What's the significance of that event in this evolution of a peacemaker that you paint?
1: He thought he was being manipulated by the CIA and uh, simply lied to In terms of uh, what he was told prior to the Bay of Pigs, he was told that intelligence uh, reports showed that the Cuban people would rise up against uh, Fidel Castro if an exile force landed there and that the exile force would be able to retreat into certain kinds of terrain that in fact didn't exist (laughs) where they landed. Um, He realized that their whole purpose was to put him in a position where he would— be compelled to send in uh, combat units to uh, Cuba to win rather than take a defeat as a new president. And he decided afterwards that uh, what he wanted to do, as he put it, was splinter the CIA in a thousand pieces and scatter it to the winds as a result of the deception that they employed on him. And he, of course, fired... Alan Dulles, and several subordinates for their role in the Bay of Pigs.
0: There's kind of a veiled reference to that in the American University speech about this uh, idea of circumstances that would put one or the other superpowers in a position of having to accept a humiliating failure.
1: Yes, there is. and uh, Which he was willing to do in this case. He was, um, uh, on the one hand, a cold warrior, um, and he was pushing uh, Castro, uh, both Castro and Khrushchev, repeatedly during his time in office. On the other hand, he began to see more and more and more through the eyes of Khrushchev and eventually Castro himself, and he and Khrushchev had a secret correspondence, and that secret correspondence built a kind of trust between them, even as they struggled in an ideological conflict that took us to the brink of total nuclear war.
0: Yes, I wanted to ask you about that. Tell me more about what you find intriguing in that uh private correspondence.
1: Kennedy suggested the need for it in the the only meeting he ever had with uh Khrushchev that was in Vienna in June of 61. He said he thought that they they needed to fly beneath the radar of their advisors and of all the the uh the lights and the publicity of the media and uh uh, September of 61 is when uh, Khrushchev sent his uh, his secret letter, first secret letter to Kennedy. Their correspondence continued through 63. And when Kennedy received that uh, through his press secretary, um, Pierre Salinger, wrapped up in a newspaper, he replied to it um, uh, agreeing to a symbol that Khrushchev, of all people, had suggested, namely Noah's Ark, that the two of them and all of humanity were caught in a situation where we all had to stay afloat in the midst of nuclear weapons and that it wasn't appropriate to distinguish between the clean and the unclean on that Noah's Ark. Kennedy agreed immediately to this uh, biblical symbol that Khrushchev, the atheist, had suggested, and the two of them went back and forward on uh, all kinds of issues secretly, during the time of Kennedy's presidency. And at the end of that correspondence, uh, Kennedy was having to rely on the KGB rather than his own uh, uh, State Department to communicate with Khrushchev because his final public uh, attempt to get to Khrushchev was blocked by his State Department. So the whole process is one of of going uh, outside their own uh, national security states to try to speak uh, one-on-one.
0: Mm-hmm. This kind of uh, back-channel communication was necessary because both Kennedy and Khrushchev felt they were somewhat at odds with the hawks in their respective governments. Isn't that right?
1: They were, um, and and uh, each of them recognized the other's position. And Khrushchev, uh, both in the Berlin crisis and in the uh, Cuban Missile Crisis was the first to pull back because he seemed to recognize that the pressures were even more intense on Kennedy than they were on himself, and that he needed to give Kennedy more room. (laughs) It was a very um, sensitive and a very generous attitude by Khrushchev, and Kennedy recognized what was going on, so that at the height of the missile crisis, he actually appealed to Khrushchev when they were at the the most dire point of the missile crisis, at a point where we almost uh, experienced a nuclear, total nuclear war across the globe. Kennedy said, I can't control anymore what's happening. I'm afraid that my military advisors may push us into war. And Khrushchev received uh, that message from JFK And he turned to his foreign minister, Andrei Gromyko, and he said, we have to let Kennedy know that we want to help him. We now have a common cause to save the world from those pushing us toward war. And at that point, Khrushchev and Kennedy became closer to each other than either of them was to his own national security state. That's a very remarkable story.
0: There are many key dramatic moments in that October 1962 Cuban Missile Crisis, some that were dramatized in the film 13 Days. Yes. What moments stand out there in JFK's tangling with his own advisors that you think begin to make him a marked man in his own government?
1: When he met with his Joint Chiefs of Staff um, and when he tangled with General Curtis LeMay... He was certainly marked out uh, by them as being someone totally beyond the pale. General Curtis LeMay, as we know from the conversations that JFK recorded secretly during the missile crisis, was arrogant with the President to the point of, um, well, virtual insubordination. He told him in the uh, center of the other uh, joint chiefs that what the president was trying to do, namely blockade and negotiate uh, rather than simply strike the missiles and destroy them in Cuba, was as bad as the uh, virtual surrender to Hitler at Munich by forces that led us into the Second World War, according to General Curtis LeMay. God forbid we find ourselves in a nuclear exchange, but if launched, those missiles from Cuba would kill a lot of Americans. The very presence of those missiles gives the Soviets first-strike capability. Those missiles make a nuclear exchange more likely. And that is why I'm being such a pain in the ass about destroying them... and destroying them immediately. And, sir, given your own statements about Cuba... I think a, a blockade or a bunch of political talk... would be considered by a lot of our friends and neutrals as a pretty weak response. I suspect that many of our own citizens might feel the same way. You're in a pretty bad fix, Mr. President.
0: What did you say? You're in a pretty bad fix. So well, maybe you haven't noticed you're in it with me. Now general, what are the uh, what are the Soviets going to do when we attack?
1: Nothing, nothing, nothing. Because the only alternative open to them is one they can't choose.
0: You know, they're they're not just missiles we're gonna be destroying, General. If we kill Soviet soldiers, they're gonna respond. I mean, how would we respond? If they killed ours, no, they're gonna do something, General. I can promise you that.
1: And he walked out of the room And then the recording continued, and we can hear the generals um, cursing um, about their president and his failure to carry out the steps that they feel are absolutely necessary. Those goddamn Kennedys are going to destroy this country if we don't do something about this.
0: A clip from the movie 13 Days, which dramatized the October 1962 Cuban Missile Crisis. This is Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. We'll have more with author James Douglas and hear John F. Kennedy's June 1963 speech at American University, where he laid out his vision for peace. I'm Paul Ingalls, back in a moment. You're listening to Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution, online at peacetalksradio.com. I'm Paul Ingalls, and today, John F. Kennedy's turn towards peace during his brief presidency, cut short by his assassination in November of 1963. Author and theologian James Douglas has written the book, JFK and the Unspeakable, Why He Died and Why It Matters. Douglas believes and makes his detailed case in his book, that Kennedy was assassinated by his own national security state, officials inside his own government who are, officials inside his own government who were unhappy with Kennedy's international moves in Southeast Asia and in dealing with the Soviet Union nuclear threat in Cuba, Jim, after the Cuban Missile Crisis of october nineteen sixty two and throughout the rest of his short presidency, Kennedy talks peace, but his policies contradict his talk sometimes, don't they?
1: They do. Uh, he was not a uh, a person committed to nonviolence. He was not a person who even was consistent within the vision that he stated at American University. Uh, Kennedy does toss bones to his national security state periodically, and he allows and um, he authorizes subversion in Cuba. Um, he also escalates the number of advisors in Vietnam. He does things that are in conflict with his vision of ending the Cold War. But he is moving step by step uh, both into the test ban treaty with Khrushchev. He is moving into negotiations with Fidel Castro, carried on secretly, beginning in the fall of 1963. And he also uh, writes up a national security memorandum withdrawing troops from Vietnam, 1,000 in 63, and authorizing everybody out by the end of 65. He's moving, even though he's also engaged in contradictions.
0: We've referred a couple of times to this American University speech that Kennedy gives on June tenth, 1963, and we're going to let our listeners hear a good bit of it. Uh, Jim Douglas, what would you call their attention to as they listen?
1: I would hope we could first of all, remember the context in which it occurred at the height of the Cold War when it was regarded as heresy (laughs) from a theological standpoint to talk with the devil, um, Khrushchev, uh, Castro, anybody on the other side, any communist. And here is Kennedy in his American University Address challenging his listeners, uh, not only the students and the faculty at this uh, campus in Washington, D.C., but all of the American people to look at our own involvement in the Cold War and to see that the problem is not simply what about the Russians, which was always the question raised in those days that you can't trust the Russians, but what about ourselves? What about our motives? What about our inability to see the absolute necessity for peace in the nuclear age if we and all of humanity are to survive. So Kennedy is trying to double back on ourselves and to say that we are just as much a key to peace as the Russians. And he tries to um, get us to understand the suffering that the people of the Soviet Union went through during the Second World War and how we as their former allies need to become allies again, in this case, in a struggle to end war itself.
0: Let's listen now. President John Kennedy addressing graduates of American University, June 10, 1963.
2: I have therefore chosen this time and place to discuss a topic on which ignorance too often abounds and the truth too rarely perceived. And that is the most important topic on earth, peace. What kind of a peace do I mean and what kind of a peace do we seek? Not a Pax Americana enforced on the world by American weapons of war. Not the peace of the grave or the security of the slave. I am talking about genuine peace, the kind of peace that makes life on earth worth living the kind that enables men and nations to grow and to hope and build a better life for their children. Not merely peace for Americans, but peace for all men and women. Not merely peace in our time, but peace in all time. I speak of peace because of the new face of war. Total war makes no sense in an age where great powers can maintain large and relatively invulnerable nuclear forces and refuse to surrender without resort to those forces. It makes no sense in an age where a single nuclear weapon contains almost ten times the explosive force delivered by all the Allied air forces in the Second World War. It makes no sense in an age when the deadly poisons produced by a nuclear exchange would be carried by wind and water and soil and seed to the far corners of the globe and to generations yet unborn. Today, the expenditure of billions of dollars every year on weapons acquired for the purpose of making sure we never need them is essential to the keeping of peace. But surely the acquisition of such idle stockpiles, which can only destroy and never create, is not the only, much less the most efficient, means of assuring peace. I speak of peace, therefore, as the necessary rational end of rational men. I realize the pursuit of peace is not as dramatic as the pursuit of war, and frequently the words of the pursuers fall on deaf ears, but we have no more urgent task. Some say that it is useless to speak of peace, or world law, or world disarmament, and that it will be useless until the leaders of the Soviet Union adopt a more enlightened attitude. I hope they do. I believe we can help them do it. But I also believe that we must re-examine our own attitudes as individuals, and as a nation. For our attitude is as essential as theirs. And every graduate of this school, every thoughtful citizen who despairs of war and wishes to bring peace, should begin by looking inward, by examining his own attitude towards the possibilities of peace, towards the Soviet Union, towards the course of the Cold War, and towards freedom and peace here at home. First, examine our attitude towards peace itself. Too many of us think it is impossible. Too many think it is unreal. But that is a dangerous, defeatist belief. It leads to the conclusion that war is inevitable, that mankind is doomed, that we are gripped by forces we cannot control. We need not accept that view. Our problems are man-made. Therefore, they can be solved by man. And man can be as big as he wants. No problem of human destiny is beyond human beings. Man's reason and spirit have often solved the seemingly unsolvable. And we believe they can do it again. I am not referring to the absolute, infinite concept of universal peace and goodwill of which some fantasies and fanatics dream. I do not deny the value of hopes and dreams, but we merely invite discouragement and incredulity by making that our only and immediate goal. Let us focus instead on a more practical, more attainable peace, based not on a sudden revolution in human nature, but on a gradual evolution in human institutions, on a series of concrete actions and effective agreements which are in the interests of all concerned. There is no single simple key to this peace, no grand or magic formula to be adopted by one or two powers. Genuine peace must be the product of many nations, the sum of many acts. It must be dynamic, not static changing to meet the challenge of each new generation for peace is a process a way of solving problems with such a peace there will still be quarrels and conflicting interests as there are within families and nations world peace like community peace does not require that each man love his neighbor it requires only that they live together in mutual tolerance submitting their disputes to a just and peaceful settlement. And history teaches us that enmities between nations, as between individuals, do not last forever. However fixed our likes and dislikes may seem, the tide of time and events will often bring surprising changes in the relations between nations and neighbors. So let us persevere. Peace need not be impractical, and war need not be inevitable. By defining our goal more clearly, by making it seem more manageable and less remote, we can help all people to see it, to draw hope from it, and to move irresistibly towards it. And second, let us re-examine our attitude towards the Soviet Union, not to see only a distorted and desperate view of the other side, Not to see conflict as inevitable, accommodation as impossible, and communication as nothing more than an exchange of threats. No government or social system is so evil that its people must be considered as lacking in virtue. As Americans, we find communism profoundly repugnant as a negation of personal freedom and dignity, but we can still hail the Russian people. For their many achievements in science and space, in economic and industrial growth, in culture, in acts of courage. Among the many traits the peoples of our two countries have in common, none is stronger than our mutual abhorrence of war. Almost unique among the major world powers, we have never been at war with each other. And no nation in the history of battle ever suffered more than the Soviet Union in the Second World War. At least 20 million lost their lives. Countless millions of homes and families were burned or sacked. A third of the nation's territory, including two-thirds of its industrial base, was turned into a wasteland, a loss equivalent to the destruction of this country east of Chicago. Today, should total war ever break out again, no matter how, our two countries will be the primary target. It is an ironic but accurate fact that the two strongest powers are the two in the most danger of devastation. All we have built, all we have worked for, would be destroyed in the first 24 hours. And even in the Cold War, our two countries bear the heaviest burdens. For we are both devoting massive sums of money to weapons, that could be better devoted to combat ignorance, poverty, and disease. We are both caught up in a vicious and dangerous cycle, with suspicion on one side breeding suspicion on the other, and new weapons begetting counterweapons. In short, both the United States and its allies, and the Soviet Union and its allies, have a mutually deep interest in a just and genuine peace and in holding the arms race. Agreements to this end are in the interests of the Soviet Union as well as ours. For in the final analysis, our most basic common link is that we all inhabit this small planet. We all breathe the same air. We all cherish our children's futures. And we are all mortal. Third, let us re-examine our attitude towards the Cold War. Remembering we're not engaged in a debate, seeking to pile up debating points. We are not here distributing blame or pointing the finger of judgment. We must deal with the world as it is and not as it might have been had the history of the last 18 years been different. We must therefore persevere in the search for peace in the hope that constructive changes within the communist bloc might bring within reach solutions which now seem beyond us. We must conduct our affairs in such a way that it becomes in the communist interest to agree on a genuine peace. And above all, while defending our own vital interests, nuclear powers must avert those confrontations which bring an adversary to a choice of either a humiliating retreat or a nuclear war. To adopt that kind of course in the nuclear age would be evidence only of the bankruptcy of our policy or of a collective death wish for the world. To secure these ends, America's weapons are non-provocative, carefully controlled, designed to deter, and capable of selective use. Our military forces are committed to peace and disciplined in self-restraint. Our diplomats are instructed to avoid unnecessary irritants and purely rhetorical hostility, for we can seek a relaxation of tensions without relaxing our guard. And for our part, we do not need to use threats to prove we are resolute. We do not need to jam foreign broadcasts out of fear our faith will be eroded. We are unwilling to impose our system on any unwilling people, but we are willing and able to engage in peaceful competition with any people on Earth. It is our hope and the purpose of Allied policy to convince the Soviet Union that she too should let each nation choose its own future, so long as that choice does not interfere with the choices of others. The communist drive to impose their political and economic system on others is the primary cause of world tension today. For there can be no doubt that if all nations could refrain from interfering in the self determination of others, the peace would be much more assured. This will require a new effort to achieve world law, a new context for world discussion. It will require increased understanding between the Soviets and ourselves. An increased understanding will require increased contact and communication. One step in this direction is the proposed arrangement for a direct line between Moscow and Washington to avoid on each side the dangerous delays, misunderstandings, and misreadings of others' actions which might occur at a time of crisis. We have also been talking in Geneva about our first-step measures of arm controls, designed to limit the intensity of the arms race and reduce the risk of accidental war. Our primary long-range interest in Geneva, however, is general and complete disarmament, designed to take place by stages, permitting parallel political developments to build the new institutions of peace which would take the place of arms. The only major area of these negotiations where the end is in sight, yet where a fresh start is badly needed, is in a treaty to outlaw nuclear tests. The conclusion of such a treaty, so near and yet so far, would check the spiraling arms race in one of its most dangerous areas. It would place the nuclear powers in a position to deal more effectively with one of the greatest hazards which man faces in 1963, the further spread of nuclear arms. It would increase our security. It would decrease the prospects of war. Surely this goal is sufficiently important to require our steady pursuit, yielding neither to the temptation to give up the whole effort nor the temptation to give up our insistence on vital and responsible safeguards. I'm taking this opportunity, therefore, to announce two important decisions in this regard. First, Chairman Khrushchev, Prime Minister Macmillan, and I have agreed that high-level discussions will shortly begin in Moscow, looking towards early agreement on a comprehensive test ban treaty. Our hopes must be tempered with the caution of history, but with our hopes go the hopes of all mankind. Second. To make clear our good faith and solemn convictions on this matter, I now declare that the United States does not propose to conduct nuclear tests in the atmosphere so long as other states do not do so. We will not be the first to resume. Such a declaration is no substitute for a formal binding treaty, but I hope it will help us achieve one. Nor would such a treaty be a substitute for disarmament, but I hope it will help us achieve it. Finally, my fellow Americans, let us examine our attitude towards peace and freedom here at home. The quality and spirit of our own society must justify and support our efforts abroad. We must show it in the dedication of our own lives, as many of you who are graduating today will have an opportunity to do by serving without pay in the Peace Corps abroad, or in the proposed National Service Corps here at home. But wherever we are, we must all, in our daily lives, live up to the age-old faith that peace and freedom walk together. In too many of our cities today, the peace is not secure because freedom is incomplete. When a man's way please the Lord, the scriptures tell us, He maketh even his enemies to be at peace with him. And is not peace in the last analysis basically a matter of human rights, the right to live out our lives without fear of devastation, the right to breathe air as nature provided it, the right of future generations to a healthy existence. While we proceed to safeguard our national interests, let us also safeguard human interests. And the elimination of war and arms is clearly in the interests of both. No treaty, however much it may be to the advantage of all, however tightly it may be worded, can provide absolute security against the risks of deception and evasion. But it can, if it is sufficiently effective in its enforcement and it is sufficiently in the interest of its signers, offer far more security and far fewer risks than an unabated, uncontrolled, unpredictable arms race. The United States, as the world knows, will never start a war. We do not want a war. We do not now expect a war. This generation of Americans has already had enough, more than enough, of war and hate and oppression. We shall be prepared if others wish it. We shall be alert to try to stop it. But we shall also do our part to build a world of peace where the weak are safe and the strong are just. We are not helpless before that task. Or hopeless of its success, confident and unafraid, we must labor on, not towards a strategy of annihilation, but towards a strategy of peace. Thank you.
0: President John Kennedy addressing graduates of American University in Washington, D.C., June 10, 1963. We'll ask our guest, author James Douglas, more about these remarks right after our break. This is Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm Paul Ingalls. Back in a moment. Listening to Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. We're online at peacetalksradio.com. I'm Paul Ingalls, and today, John F. Kennedy's Turn Towards Peace. Author and theologian James Douglas is our guest. He's written the book JFK and the Unspeakable Why He Died and Why It Matters. And before the break, we were listening to JFK's June 1963 speech at American University where he presented his detailed vision of peace between the U.S. and the Soviet Union, in the world at large and within the United States. Jim Douglas, uh, so how does this speech figure into why JFK died and why it matters?
1: I think we can make a parallel between Martin Luther King's April 4, 1967 Riverside Church Address, where he took a stand against his own government uh, in the Vietnam War, um, and then result that resulted in his assassination. And John F. Kennedy uh, taking a stand where he says in his American University address, he does not want a Pax Americana enforced on the world by American weapons of war, where he takes a stand against the entire military-industrial complex, which uh, is committed to a Pax Americana enforced on the world by American weapons of war. What President Eisenhower identified as the major threat to democracy in the United States, the military-industrial complex, uh, just as he goes out of office after having done nothing to resist it. John F. Kennedy takes on both uh, in the American University Address by making statements that go contrary to the military-industrial complex and calling for an end to the Cold War, which is what is giving them their huge projects, and then he carries out specific policies to, uh, to end the Cold War, beginning with the, the nuclear test ban treaty and the withdrawal of troops from Vietnam and the negotiations with Castro um, under the table, as it were, without uh, anyone really seeing it except uh, people who are following all of those steps very closely, namely the Central Intelligence Agency and his Joint Chiefs of Staff.
0: Uh, Jim, there isn't uh, time to go into detail in your careful analysis of the assassination evidence in your book, but in your research, what do you feel seemed new and compelling that perhaps hadn't been exposed or speculated about in the dozens of other books suggesting that Lee Harvey Oswald didn't act alone and and that a conspiracy was afoot in JFK's assassination?
1: The plot to kill Kennedy is extraordinarily sophisticated, complex, and with specific steps to implicate Oswald. I think that that plot can be described much more um, accurately today than it could before the documents that were released from the JFK Records Act came into uh, the public domain, which has been during the last 15 years. That plot involves implicating Oswald uh, deeply by a person impersonating him, uh, carrying out actions in um, Mexico City in September of nineteen sixty three going to the Cuban and the Soviet consulates, making phone calls to them, basically implicating the uh not only Oswald but those two governments, Cuba and the Soviet Union, in the assassination by uh oswald 's contacts with them, actually a person impersonating Oswald. And there are step by step efforts to to uh, not only kill John F. Kennedy, but to blame the two other major powers in the Cold War, uh, the Soviet Union and Cuba, for that assassination. Fortunately, that didn't happen, and the reason it didn't happen was that the president, the new president Lyndon Johnson, on the one hand, um, didn't want a, a a war with Cuba and the Soviet Union, beginning his presidency, but also he didn't have the courage to confront the CIA, which was doing all this implicating of the um, of the uh, Cold War enemies. So all of this can be traced very specifically and accurately today by documents that uh, we have obtained uh, through a congressional mandate, a, a law passed in
0: 1992. Can you imagine any scenario that uh, would uh, allow for a um, a new investigation that would uh, bring this back to the fore, as opposed to sort of below the radar of uh, books like yours and others.
1: I find it hard to imagine. Uh, the reason is that um, we have a hard time with uh, the Fox investigating the murder in the in the hen house, and new investigations always seem to involve the CIA and the FBI. Well, they're not going to do the job. Uh, It would have to be a totally independent kind of scrutiny. And when efforts were made in that respect in the 1970s, the CIA and the FBI moved in and took over the investigation of the House Select Committee on Assassinations, and we didn't get a genuine investigation. So we would have to have really a nonviolent revolution in this country and in our own government, uh, where we retake back, we, where we take back a democracy and um, make our intelligence agencies far more intelligent and far less covert right now. They're covert action agencies, and they're carrying out uh, methods in the war against terror that are themselves terrorism so we're not going to get an investigation from our own government until we reform our own government which will require a kind of nonviolent revolution as articulated by Dr Martin Luther King.
0: Well this is the first of 3 volumes that uh, you have planned the next one considers the assassinations of Malcolm X and Martin Luther King. That's right. And then on the third will explore the assassination of Robert Kennedy. Will those men's uh, peace and social justice philosophies figure prominently in the reasons you believe they were killed?
1: Yes. uh, These were uh, people who tried to carry out an alternative vision, and they were taken out by a national security state, which saw an overriding vision of us against them, uh, absolute good versus absolute evil. And Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, and even Robert Kennedy at a higher level of power, who wanted to reinvestigate the assassination of his brother, these were all big obstacles to a national security state agenda. So they were all assassinated in the same kind of way that John F. Kennedy was.
0: All of these assassinations happened 40 years ago. Has there been any progress toward a better vision in your view?
1: Yes and no. Uh, There has been at a grassroots level all kinds of activity, um, both in this country and certainly across the world, Toward the kind of vision seen by John Kennedy as necessary in his American university address, but in terms of our government um, our government has been descending downhill uh we have we as a people have never forced our government uh through a a public mandate to deal with um the crimes that it has carried out, and those go way back to the uh, the uh bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki in the Second World War through um, the buildup of our national security state that resulted in the killing of John F. Kennedy. So it's it's up to us, uh, basically, as to whether or not we're going to have those kinds of event, events repeated and continue our, our downward tread, which will result in the, the disintegration of the United States. A democracy is dependent on us.
0: Well, James Douglas, then back to the beginning in a way, why it matters... What is your hope for exploring and exposing the details of these
1: events? I think what we can be given by understanding uh, JFK's turn toward peace is a lens. It's a a lens by which we can see the world in greater depth. Uh, if we can understand how our own government and our own uh, national security state and our covert action agencies if we can understand how they with impunity assassinated the president of the United States because he turned toward peace we can understand exactly what the dangers are today for ourselves in a um a similar context and unless we have a movement for peace which keeps any future president from becoming isolated, as John F. Kennedy was when he turned toward peace, unless we as a people can move dramatically toward peace in our own commitment, we're going to have the events of 1963 repeated in one form or another, perhaps by an assassination, perhaps by um, an overt uh, covert, (laughs) covert and overt action of another nature that is set up by our national security state. We need a lens. We need a commitment. We need a vision that can take us beyond terror, beyond cold wars, and beyond nuclear weapons toward a world at peace.
0: What does that look like in terms of personal action for listeners to this program?
1: Non-cooperation with evil is as much a duty as cooperation with good. That's Gandhi who said that. And that means that When it comes to paying income taxes that go into our national security state, we should be raising questions to ourselves about that. When it comes to um, uh, volunteering in any way for a job, um, whether it be in the military or in the civilian sector that supports warfare, um, we should be asking strong questions about that. And when it comes to how we spend our own money, (laughs) um, whether it goes toward corporate power or goes toward peacemaking, we should be asking strong questions about that. Everything we do moves toward peace and justice or it moves toward warfare in all kinds of ways. And if we, um, as Thomas Merton suggested, look toward the unspeakable in ourselves, then we can begin to see how to move our government in a similar direction. But it all comes down to very personal decisions, as Gandhi understood, as Jesus understood, and as I think we can understand also.
0: James Douglas is author of the book, JFK and the Unspeakable, Why He Died and Why It Matters, from Orbis Books. Jim, thanks for talking with us today on Peace Talks Radio.
1: Thank you, Paul.
0: For more about the James Douglas book, JFK and the Unspeakable, Why He Died and Why It Matters, plus a link to the JFK American University speech and other resources, you can visit our website online at peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com. There you can hear this program again. You can order a CD, sign up for a podcast, or for our monthly newsletter. You can actually hear all the programs in our series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution going back to 2003 at peacetalksradio.com and it's also where you can make a tax deductible contribution to support the nonprofit work of Good Radio Shows Incorporated which produces this program and protects some airtime and web space for talk about peacemaking. Good Radio Shows Incorporated is currently in our annual fundraising season so if you can do your part we'd certainly appreciate the support. In fact, we really can't do this without some help from listeners like you. So go to peacetalksradio.com and follow the link to contribute for details. In addition to support from listeners like you, we have some support from the Oppenheimer Brothers Foundation, the McCune Charitable Foundation of New Mexico, the Peacetales CD Project at peacetales.org, and from KUNM at the University of New Mexico in Albuquerque. I'm Paul Ingalls. Thanks for listening to and for doing your part to support Peace Talks Radio.